Let's go ahead and get into God's Word together. So, as always, if you would go ahead and grab your Bibles, your smartphones, your tablets, or whatever it is that you uh, tend to use to get your eyes on God's Word, and would you meet me this morning in Psalm 19? We'll be in Psalm 19 this morning. Uh, as always, I would really invite you, encourage you to have God's Word right there in front of you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's still a couple ways you could do that. You could just pull out a phone and Google uh, Psalm 19 and it'll pop up for you. Or uh, as always, there's a rack of Bibles in the back of the room uh, that you could make use of. And if you don't have one, we would love for you to just uh, take one of those and keep it as our gift to you. But let me pray for our time together in Psalm 19 this morning as we come to God's Word. Father, we are so thankful for who you are, all that you've done. We thank you for the ability, the privilege to gather together to worship your name this morning, to sing praises to the King of Kings, Father. That's who you are. We thank you for that. Father, we come to your word now, and we ask that your spirit would be present among us. It would be moving to challenge us, to equip us, to encourage us, and ultimately to make us look more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. One of the defining moments of my lifetime happened during uh, my first semester as a community college student. I'd accepted Christ as a young child, uh, thankful for that, but I, because I grew up in a Christian home and went to a Christian school and my uh, parents served in church leadership at, at the church that I grew up in, I was never really outside of my own little Christian bubble. I'm thankful for the uh, solid foundation for my faith that, that, that laid for me, but uh, because of that, at the same time, I fell into all the trappings of that small Christian bubble. I was the kid who never really got into trouble, never really rebelled. I, I knew all of the, the right Bible answers, but I never really grew in my faith either. All of my faith was about a, a mile wide and an inch deep, uh, and I was just really waiting for uh, the moment when I would finally be able to pursue my childhood dream of becoming a deputy with uh, my local county sheriff's office. I couldn't do that until I was 21, so uh, after I graduated high school, I decided to pass the time by enrolling uh, to get a degree in criminal justice from, uh, from our local community college. And it would take all of about 15 minutes into my first class of my first semester at that community college for that comfortable Christian bubble to burst. You could hear the professor coming as he entered the room. His name was Dr. Terrell, and he actually went on to become one of the best professors that I had uh, in any class, in any subject uh, ever. But you could hear him coming before he entered the room. The door at the back of the room swung open, and he came in lumbering down the center of the aisle and passing out the syllabus and then taking his place, sitting on the desk at the front of the room like he always did to the point where the desk bowed. See, Dr. Terrell was a giant of a man who was with a larger-than-life personality. And, and as he took his seat, we began going through the syllabus for CJ 101, Introduction to Criminal Justice. At the bottom of the page of that syllabus, there was a phrase that said, this course may contain strong language and sensitive subjects. I'll never forget what happened next. Dr. Terrell, in his booming voice, said, listen, cross out may, put will, because listen, if there's any of you Christians in this room, you might as well go ahead and leave now because Christians are just a bunch of wimps. They can't take this stuff and they don't make good police officers. I stayed in the room. I did go on to serve my county sheriff's office as a deputy for almost four years, but my Christian bubble had burst in that moment. And all my plans, my plans were to do that for a career and, and just hearing someone say that really kind of threw me for a loop. And, and, I, and so I, I did that, but God used that moment to, dra to drastically change the trajectory of my life. Within a few days of that 
of that moment, I sought the advice of a man who had been a mentor to me, who was a godly man in the church that I grew up in and who also happened to be a sergeant in our county sheriff's office. I'll never forget the advice that he gave me. It was some of the best advice that I've ever been given. He said, listen, Andrew, you're now outside of the Christian bubble that you grew up in, and it's time for you to actually dig into God's word for yourself figure out exactly what it is you believe and why. You've got you've to read this for yourself and, and figure all of that out. And so I did. For the first time in my life, I stopped depending on whatever biblical truth I happened to pick up at church on Sunday mornings or, or throughout the, the week and, and decided to start devouring God's Word for myself. As the seed of God's Word began taking in my life, I realized that, that God is far more than a God to be casually acquainted with on Sunday mornings. He's a God who has spoken he has spoken so that he may be followed. I've never looked back. God has used that moment to change my life, to, to deepen my relationship with him, to use that in my, my call to ministry. He's, he's given me the burden to preach God's word. And over the past couple of months, since I announced that this would be my final Sunday morning here with you, I've been so encouraged by the amount of you that have shared with me how much you've appreciated my preaching, how much you've, uh, God's used that in your life to grow you. I'm always encouraged to hear that, but I want to share a little secret with you. It wasn't me. In fact, I had very little to do with that. I I hope you know that by now. But each week as I've stood behind this pulpit, I've had one goal, to faithfully point you back towards what God has always already said in his word. That's why you've heard me say the phrase, look back with me countless times over the past year, because I have nothing to say other than what God has already said. And so on this final Sunday morning together, I want to point us back to God's word one last time to invite us to look back at Psalm 19 with us, with me, to see what God's word has to say about God's word. As we do that this morning, here's our big idea, our one sentence overarching theme of the passage that ties it together for us. Our our big idea this morning is this, God has spoken so that he may be known and followed. Again, God has spoken so that he may be known and followed. In Psalm 19, we're going to see that God has spoken in two ways, two voices, Uh, really with two purposes. And so first, it's this. God has spoken through nature, so we may know he's there. God has spoken through nature, so we may know he's there. Look back with me at Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. David's writing this psalm, and he says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In him, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. In an age where we're constantly focused on looking down at our phones and focusing uh, way too much on the things in front of us, not much will make you feel smaller or more insignificant than taking some time to, to go outside in the peace and quiet and to look up into the heavens and, and to, to just take in the massive out there and see all that's out there. The out there has captivated countless people throughout human history. It has it's caused people to uh, ponder life's deepest questions and it's, it's invited uh, explorers to explore the vast unknown. Even with all the advanced technology that we have available to us today, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of how massive the out there is. But even just stopping to look at what we do know is enough to lead us to worship, to to blow our minds. 
For instance, we live in the Milky Way galaxy, which is just one of many galaxies in the universe. And even though it's about 12,000 light years from one end of the Milky Way to the other, and for reference, one light year is 5.9 trillion miles, but it's 12,000 light years, even though that is the reality of the galaxy we live in, it's only about an average-sized galaxy. And our, our Milky Way galaxy has somewhere between two and 400 billion stars, most of, most of which are just too far away for us to even see with the naked eye. And, and scientists tell us that there are galaxies that have trillions and trillions of stars. When I stop to think about, about all of that and so much more about the, the out there, not only do I feel incredibly small and insignificant, but it really run, leads you to wonder the question, why? Like, why is that all there? Why, why would that be necessary? I mean, I get why we have the sun and the moon and, and the stars to, to light things up. I get all that, but, but what about all of that extra stuff? Why is that there? Why, why is it there if it has no impact on us? Psalm 19 answers that question for us. It tells us that the out there has a job. Its job is to proclaim the glory of God, to, to be the preacher of God's glory to the entire universe. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In Genesis chapter 1, the eternal God stepped into time and spoke. With the word of his mouth, he created uh, all of the, the, the stars out there and flung them into their place. With the word of his mouth, he, he created the sun and the moon and the planets, and he hung them in their place, and they still stay there today to proclaim a message to us. They're there to proclaim the glory of God. The message is this, there is a God, and he's created us, and he's created you, and he is awesome, and, and, and you need to know that he's there. As a baseball fan, I've really enjoyed over the past year making several trips over to Cooperstown to see the Hall of Fame. And really, just like any museum, the Baseball Hall of Fame exists to proclaim the glory of days gone by. You can go in there, you can see awesome things. One of my favorite exhibits, you can walk in and see what is allegedly the first baseball that was ever used. It's this little, tall, small thing. It's pretty, uh, not in great shape, but you can see that. Then you can walk around and see exhibits proclaiming the glory of great baseball players like Hank Aaron, Jackie Robinson, Babe Ruth. You can see all of that stuff. But that's all it is. It's proclaiming past glory. The Baseball Hall of Fame might be able to point to past glory, but the heavens declare the eternal glory of God, the never-ending glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork, and that proclamation is for everyone. The psalmist says that day pours out speech, like it, it can't stop talking, and, and night reveals knowledge, like it can't stop teaching, and their voice is going to the ends of the earth to proclaim God's glory to everyone so that they may know that he's there. The psalmist makes it even clear uh, that God wants everyone to know he's there in verses 4 through 6 as he zooms in from just kind of talking about the general out there, the the heavens, the the skies, and he zooms in to talking specifically about the sun. In verse 8, he gives us two vivid illustrations of what the sun is like. First, he says the sun is like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. When it comes to weddings, everyone gives this piece of advice like it's some secret. But from the amount of people that I've, I've heard this advice from, I don't think it's that big of a secret. But if you're about to go to a wedding, someone may very well tell you, listen, when, when it's time for the bride to, to enter the, the sanctuary, you know how everyone turns around and looks at her? Well, listen, I'll tell you the secret. You should, you should watch the groom's face. The reason you should watch the groom's face is not because he looks all handsome, dressed up in his tuxedo and all that, but because when the bride enters the room, his face will reflect the glory of another. The psalmist is saying 
that's what it's like each morning when the sun rises. The, the reason the sun is so amazing is not because of itself, but it is because it is proclaiming the glory of someone so much greater and proclaiming there is a God and that God wants you to know that he's there. So it's like a bridegroom. And second, it says the, the son is like a strong man running his course with joy. I know this is a terrible thought, especially in uh, weather like this morning, but just imagine for a second running an entire marathon. It's a horrible thought, I know. All 26.2 miles of it. And a champion or a strong man of verse 5 that is going to win a marathon has to run every single inch of that 26.2 miles. They can't skip a single step. Just like that, David says, the sun has a course to run. And it runs that course every single inch, every single day. And as the sun's rays are running that course across the 196.9 billion, or million square miles of the earth's surface, as it's, as it's moving and illuminating blade of grass to blade of grass to blade of grass, as it's moving all the way around, it has one message to proclaim. And that message is simply this, there is a God. He's there, and he wants you to know that he's there. The point of these first six verses of Psalm 19 is that all of creation is proclaiming his glory. That God has spoken through creation so that everyone who's ever lived in every corner of the world may know that there's a God. The problem, though, is that even though creation can show us he's there, creation cannot teach us how to follow him. If all we ever knew is that we could deduce that there's a, there's a powerful creator God out there somewhere, that's still not enough information to teach us how to follow him, to show us to be saved. The voice of creation is enough to convince us there's a God, but it's not enough to convert us to that God. The, the, the voice of creation can lead us to an awe of God, but it can't teach us how to have a relationship with that God. It can't lead us to follow him. The hard truth is that if you can just deduce that there is a God out there, there's something out there, that's all you can figure out. The reality is that's not enough information to save us. As Romans 1, 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, all of creation has been proclaiming to us, there's a God. He's out there, and we're accountable for that information. Like, nobody, when it comes to Judgment Day, is going to get away with the excuse of, why well, I just, I didn't know. I, didn't, I couldn't figure that out. No, God has made his presence clear through creation, and we are accountable for that. All who have not repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of their souls will face eternity against God's wrath, even if they've never heard the name of Jesus. That's why the gospel is so urgent. That's why we must go to the 3.24 billion people, and that's about 41.7% of the people alive today who have little to no access of the gospel. We must go to them and stand before them like Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17 and say, listen, I know you're a religious people. I know, I know you worship some things, but I also know that you know that there's another God. There is one God. He is, he is out there. You know he's there. You've, you've heard the voice of his creation, and I'd like to introduce you to him because he has sent his son to save you from your sins. That's why the gospel is urgent. We must go with that message because they need to know more than there's something out there. They need to know how to follow that God. They need 
the gospel. And the good news is that nature isn't the only way that God has spoken because number two this morning, God has spoken through Scripture so we may follow Him here. God has spoken through Scripture so we may follow Him here. Look back with me at Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14. It says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More are they to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping with them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Second Peter chapter 1, Peter says this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, so that he may be able to follow the God that creation points to. In other words, God wrote a book. He did it by the Holy Spirit speaking through over 40 different human authors with different backgrounds, personalities, and styles in the form of 66 books compiled in one book written in three different languages across three different continents for the span of about 1,300 years. And he did it not just so that we can know that he's there, but so that we can follow him. So that we can know how to follow him because God wrote a book. Let me just say, if that's the case, and, and it is, why wouldn't we want to devour that book? Why wouldn't we want to dig into that book and to to know this God and to follow Him as He's been revealed in Scripture? Because God has given us Scripture so that we may follow Him. And in in the the second half of Psalm 19, the psalmist gives us 12 ways that God uses His Word to show us how to follow Him. So we're going to look at those 12 ways now. Uh, We can't spend a lot of time on them because we have 12 things to look at. But here's the first. First, God uses His Word to revive us. First half of verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Specifically, the law is the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, but generally speaking, it can refer to all of Scripture. So just look at the adjective there. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's inerrant. It's without error. It has no mistakes, no contradictions. It's perfect. And how does God use it? It says He uses it to revive the soul. The picture that comes to my mind is, is CPR, the, the bringing a pulse back to someone who has no pulse. And, and, and God uses His Word to save us and revive us, not because Scripture does it itself, but because all of Scripture points to Jesus. Jesus Himself shows us that in Luke chapter 24. After He rose from the dead, He, he appeared to a couple of His followers and walked with them on the road to Emmaus, and He taught them God's Word. And Luke 24, 27 says, and beginning with Moses, that would be the Torah, the, the, the law of the Lord that Psalm 19 is talking about. But beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That's how God uses his word to revive us because it points us 
to Jesus. He uses it to revive us because as Ephesians 2, 1 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. A dead people need reviving. We've all sinned against God and we deserve to spend eternity facing God's wrath because of our sins. But God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, to come here and live the perfect life that we could never live and die the death that we deserve so that we could be revived, so that we could be saved. And that's the message that all of Scripture points to. The Bible tells us that the the first steps of doing that are repentance and faith, that to repent is to turn from your sins and and to turn towards what, what Jesus loves and to put all of your faith, your hope, your trust not in yourself for salvation, but in Him alone and His finished work on the cross. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, please make today the day of salvation. There's no better day than today, and we'd love to talk with you after the service about what the gospel would mean in your life. But God uses His Word to revive us. Again, not because Scripture itself has any particular way of saving you other than it points you to the One who is your Savior. Second, next, God uses His word to mature us. The second half of verse 7 says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord is Scripture's own witness to who God is and and what He requires of us. And it says that that His testimony is sure. It's stable. It's secure. It's it's trustworthy and dependable. And because of that, we can go to God's word for wisdom, to, to be made wise. Think about this. Wisdom and maturity go hand in hand. So as you dig into God's Word, God uses His Word to mature His people, to, to move us from being simple to being wise. He uses it to grow us and to help us follow Him. Next, He uses His Word to rejoice us. First half of verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. His precepts are His guidelines for living, and, and they are right. They're good. They're, they're never wrong, and, and they can be counted on for accuracy. When we're looking for advice today, we, we might have plenty of ways we're tempted to turn to look for advice. We might be able to tempted to look towards friends or family or podcasts or books or, or experts on the internet. But there's only one source that will always be right, will always be perfectly accurate. And there's only one source that will bring us joy. The psalmist says it's God's word. Next, he uses his word to direct us. The second half of verse 8 says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's a rainy morning this morning, but just think about what it's like to drive in a lot of fog. Think back to the, the time that you've driven in the most fog that you've ever driven in and how disorienting that can be even on a familiar road. That's what it's like to, to navigate life in a wicked culture that's constantly trying to tell you what to do, how to live, and how to think. But the commandment of the Lord is pure. In other words, it's the fog lights for living in a foggy culture. It's how you can see and navigate and, and have your eyes enlightened to see things for how, you, how they really are and, and walk in the light of God's word and to follow him. Next, he uses his word to humble us. First half of verse 9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. For those he has revived and saved, this fear is not a, I, I'm in trouble, I've got to go hide kind of fear. It's a reverence and a humility for who God is that he uses his word to produce in us. See, our tendency is to get up each morning with the mentality of, you know what, I'm so awesome, I'm in charge, I should have God's job, but only a few minutes spent in God's word will humble us, will produce that fear of the Lord in us to, to see who he is and what he's done and remind us that, no, we should not be in charge. We should be following him as we look to follow him. 
next uses his word to ground, to, to ground us. No, that doesn't mean he sends us to our room, but, but the second half of verse 9 says the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. His rules are his, his judgments, his divine decrees about what is right and what is wrong. Dr. Danny Aiken, a hero of mine, uh, says that, that these, these rules are the only barometer for reality. Because of that, God uses his word to ground us, to anchor us to godly living to show us what he expects of us instead of letting us just wander and try to figure things out on our own and, and try to, to do the best we can. No, he, he grounds us in God's word so that we may follow him. Next, he uses his word to enrich us. The first half of verse 10 says, More are they to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. No matter what currency a country uses, gold is always valuable. No matter how an economy is doing or how a stock market is doing, gold is always desirable. It, it, always, it always is always wanted. The reason is because it enriches the person who has it. The psalmist says that God's word is more desirable than gold. Not because it's going to make your bank account grow, but because some things are worth more than money. Some things are priceless. In other words, time spent in God's word is always a good investment. There's always a good return on that investment. Next, he uses God's word to sanctify us, or to satisfy us. Second half of verse 10 says, God's word is sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And just like honey is sweet to the tongue, God's word is sweet to the soul. Just like honey or your favorite candy bar will, will satisfy your, your, your taste buds for a, a, just a time, God's word will satisfy your soul will never leave you with a stomachache. You will, you will never regret spending time in God's Word. Next, he uses his word to warn us. Verse 11 says, Moreover, by them, that's your words, is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. A lot of this comes down to the wisdom that, that we talked about before, but the Bible is full of warnings to help us navigate our way through life. I've heard it said that when the Bible says don't, what it means is don't hurt yourself. It's God's way of warning us and, and keeping us from things we shouldn't get into. And it's part of God's grace that he warns us in his word not to do certain things that would damage us. Just like a fool, it, it, only a fool would ignore the warning of a fire alarm in the middle of the night saying, get up and get out of your house. Only a fool would ignore the warnings of God's word as they try to follow him. Next, he uses his word to reveal us. Verse 12 says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. One of the most mature things that you can do as a follower of Christ is to admit to yourself that you've got some blind spots. That you can't see them for yourself. That's why they're called blind spots. It takes something outside of you, someone or something outside of you, to, to point those out to you. And so in verse 12, the psalmist is praying that the Lord would reveal his blind spots. Show me my, my hidden spots. James 1, James compares the Word of God to a mirror. And the point of looking in a mirror each morning is so that you can see things that you wouldn't otherwise see. So look into God's Word as God uses it to reveal your blind spots to you and to form you to the image of Christ as you follow Him. Next, he uses His Word to protect us. Verse 13 says, Keep back or protect your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. What he's referring to here is not those, those hidden blind spots, not, not accidental stepping into sin like we just talked about in the verse before, but willfully and intentionally stepping over the line in rebellion against God. 
psalmist here is basically praying, God, hold me back from doing that. Hold me back like I'm running towards the fight. And just, just keep me away from that stuff. Don't let me go in that direction. D.L. Moody once said, sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. So be wise. Heed the warnings of Scripture. Let him hold you back from sin by, by digging into God's word in your own life. And finally, God uses his word to transform us. Verse 14 says, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In other words, God, I realize that my natural tendency is not to trend towards holiness. I know I'm not going to drift towards sanctification, so God, sanctify me, transform me. God, do what Romans 12, 2 says, and, and don't let me be conformed to this world, but, but transform me by the renewing of, your, of my mind. Because you, O Lord, are my rock and my redeemer. You're the one that saved me. You're the one that's going to have to sanctify me. So God, do this work in me as I seek to follow you. What an incredible prayer to pray at the end of this psalm. But God has given us an incredible gift in the gift of his word. Creation can't revive us, mature us, rejoice us, direct us, humble us, ground us, enrich us, satisfy us, warn us, reveal us, protect us, or transform us. But God has spoken through his word so that we may know exactly who he is. Above creation, just pointing that, that he's out there. God has spoken through his word so that we may be saved and follow him as scripture points us to him. There is no other book like God's book. And because of all of that, because of what we've looked at in Psalm 19, I love God's word. And I've committed my life to doing what Ezra 7.10 says, to study the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach it. And so this morning, as our time draws to a close, I want to leave you with three challenges. First, I want to challenge you to commit to studying God's word throughout your life. You've heard me say that countless times over the past year to, to challenge you to a daily time alone with the Lord in His Word and, and in prayer as part of your daily routine. It's not enough to just soak in what you can on a Sunday morning or when you flip on the radio and happen to hear some preacher on the radio. You've got to dig in for yourself and study God's Word. Not just so you can just learn a bunch of Bible trivia, but so you can know this God that Scripture reveals to us and follow Him and live with Him, and, and devote your life to living for Him. So commit yourself to studying God's Word throughout your life. Second, commit to centering this church on God's Word. Pulpits are filled with people who say a lot of nice and inspiring things about God in the name of preaching, but their words are nothing if they're not deeply rooted in God's Word. I don't know who or what God has next for this church, but I do want to challenge you to run from anyone who says, listen, I'm just not really interested in teaching God's Word. Run from anyone who says, I'm not really a Bible teacher. I don't really, I don't really do that kind of thing. I just want to share what's on my heart. That kind of person will lead you astray faster than you will ever realize, no matter how well-intentioned and good-natured they may be. So be satisfied with nothing less than a man who will stand behind this pulpit before you to open God's word with you and proclaim God's word to you. Center everything this church does as a, as a church, from the, the pulpit to small groups to outreach to kids' ministry to, to evangelism to everything this church does, center it on God's word because God's word will always point you in the right direction. It will always point you to your Savior. It will always point you to Jesus. And as Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, the grass withers, the flower fades, 
but the word of our God will stand forever. So commit to studying God's word throughout your life. Second, commit to centering this church on God's word. And third, commit to proclaiming God's word around the world. Again, there are 3.24 billion people around the world who have little to no access to the gospel. And they are dying and they are going to hell without Jesus. There are families across the street from this church right now who do not know Jesus. And if no one reaches them, if no one takes the message of the gospel to them, they will die and spend eternity facing God's wrath, regardless of the fact that there was a gospel-preaching church across the street. So what will you do to reach them? God has abundantly blessed this church with incredible people, with incredible resources. And Jesus has commanded this church to go make disciples question is, will you leverage your life to do just that? As things continue to get back to normal with COVID, I would challenge you not to just get busy with church stuff, but to be effective with gospel stuff. It's my hope for this church, and that it would be deeply rooted in God's Word. As the worship team comes, I just do want to thank you for the absolute privilege that it's been to spend last year opening God's word with you. And as they're coming, I just want to pray for you as we close our time together. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, for all that you've done, for sending us your son to to save us, to redeem us. Father, it's my prayer for this church that this would be a gospel light in this area, in the capital region of New York, to, to... go and make disciples, Father. That each person in this room would know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that they would have a deep relationship with you, that they would dig into God's Word to to, to get to know you. That everything this church does would be gospel-centered, gospel-proclaiming, that we would see great fruit from this church. Father, you have promised that you would build your church. We trust you for that. We know that you are greater than all, and we worship you for that, and we want to worship you one last time now. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, Andrew, on behalf of the elders and this entire congregation, I want to thank you for faithfully opening God's Word with us each week, challenging us to, uh, to dig in. And I know that we have been blessed by your example and by your preaching. And so, uh, thank you. Thank you. Now, I'd uh, like for all of us to to join together in in praying over Andrew and his family as as they depart and on to the the next challenge, the next uh, move that God is, is drawing them to. Father God, we do come before you as a congregation who is thankful for your provision, thankful that you are a good, a gracious, and a loving God. We thank you for Andrew, Veronica, Silas, and Nathan joining us for this past year. Father, your timing is perfect, and Lord, it is not up to us to question seasons. It is only up to us to obey and surrender to your will. And so as Andrew and Veronica and the children depart from our present 
presence, Lord. We ask that your hand would be upon them. Father, go before them, blessing them in all that they put their hands and their hearts to to accomplish. Father, we do not know what is to come for any of us, Lord. But you do. Let our faith increase. Let our trust in you increase. Let our joy in who you are increase. And Father... We just praise you. All we can do is thank you for who you are and how you revealed yourself through your scriptures. And so once again, Father, we thank you for Andrew's presence here with us. And Father, we look forward to the day in eternity when we get to rejoice together and see and celebrate what you have accomplished. And so we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd encourage you to take a, a moment and, uh, and just say thank you to, to Andrew. And if you have any questions uh, about the sermon, if you, uh, as Andrew had said, that you have never surrendered your life to Christ, you want to know more about who Jesus is, or you want us to pray with you, please come forward and we'll share with you. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week.